The reading today is Ruth chapter 3 on page 265 of the Church Bibles. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find you a home for you, where you'll be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Thanks, Sam, and good morning, everyone. Once again, I met my wife, Meredith, on a long bus ride. I'm going to tell you a bit more about that bus ride this morning, but for now, it's enough for you to know that we have a pretty standard proposal story. I asked and she said yes. And it was about 17 years ago, something like that. A long time ago, it was before that over-the-top trend of elaborate proposals had kind of started. You might have noticed that trend. You may even have been involved in it yourself. In our Unley congregation, we have a very happily married couple who had such an elaborate proposal story that it ended up on morning news across the country it involved a few policemen, it involved hidden cameras and a very surprised fiancé. You may have heard of other over-the-top proposal stories. And our passage today, it has some of the hallmarks of an over-the-top proposal story, doesn't it? 
It's full of intrigue. It involves a midnight tryst on a threshing floor, whatever that means. It's a chapter that's full of double entendres and euphemisms, or at least it seems so, and that makes it a bit confusing, but also very entertaining. But I wonder what you think this chapter, chapter 3, that Sam just read to us, is all about. Sure, it's a marriage proposal, and it's a bit unusual because the woman's doing the asking rather than the traditional man doing the asking. But what's this elaborate setup all about? Well, I might ask you even more broadly, what is the book of Ruth about? You've read most of it now together over the last few weeks. What is this book about? Why do we have it in our Bibles? And as you go thinking about that question, let me just remind you of our story so far. In chapter 1, we're introduced to a family. Elimelech is the dad, the mother is Naomi, and together they have two sons, Marlon and Kilion. They live in a difficult time. It's in the time of the judges. And not only is it in the time of the judges, but there's a famine in the land. And because of that famine, Elimelech, Naomi and their two sons leave the promised land, the land that was supposed to flow with milk and honey, and they head away from the promises of God into the land of Moab. A couple of weeks ago, I wasn't here, but I think Tim Patrick kind of set up for you the antagonism that existed between Israel and Moab. I don't know if Tim put it exactly this way, but it's as though Naomi and Elimelech are walking away from God when they head to Moab. Five verses into the book, we're told that Elimelech is dead, as are his two sons, and Naomi is just left with Ruth. Things are pretty grim at the end of chapter 1. It's not a good time in the world to be a widow. And Naomi is bitter at the way her life has worked out. You might remember in verse 20 of chapter 1 that she gives herself a new name. She calls herself Mara, meaning bitterness, saying, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And then comes chapter 2. They're now back in the land where they're supposed to be, and things start to improve for Naomi. Ruth, her daughter-in-law, is sent out to go and look for food. And we come to a kind of transition in the story. Starving Naomi is no longer hungry, because God is at work and he's providing. And I think this is the first major reason why we have the book of Ruth in our Bibles. It helps us to see that God is at work. He's the one who's reversing Naomi's fortunes. It's not chance or fate or luck. No, God is at work providentially providing. God orders everything to accomplish his purposes. Let me give you an example of this. We talked about this last week, but I'll just remind you of it. We were introduced by the narrator to this man, Boaz. We're told that he's a relative of Naomi's and that he's a man of some standing in the town. And then lo and behold, when Ruth goes off to scavenge or glean for food, the first field that she finds herself in, well, it belongs to Boaz. And the way the story tells it, as we read it, it's clear that it's not just luck, is it? No, this is the providential work of God. 
part of the reason why this book is in our Bibles, I think, is it shows us how God works. It shows us that He works providentially, sometimes through people. Even people with flaws and shortcomings. God is at work. Last week we saw the kindness of Boaz. Ruth went out to get scraps in his field on that first day. She might have expected to collect just a small bundle of grain. I suggested maybe between half a kilo and a kilo of grain. Probably just enough for that night's meal. But she was welcomed instead by Boaz. She was enveloped into his family. She was given meal, a meal from the family lunch. She was given water to drink and protection. And she was allowed to glean in the very best bits of the field. And she went away that day, not with a tiny bundle of grain, but with an ephah of grain, that big sack, 13 kilos of grain. She was shown great kindness by this man, Boaz. At the start of that day, Naomi felt as though she had nothing. A dead husband and two dead sons and no food to eat. She was likely close to starving. But after just one day of gleaning, They have excess food and they have the promise of more to come the next day. I didn't pick up on that very much last week, but have a look at the end of chapter 2 on page 265 of your Bibles where it says, So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. See, by the end of chapter 2, there's been a big transition in Naomi's life. From empty stomach-wise, to full. How would you, though, rate the quality of her life at this point? Sure, their stomachs are no longer empty. They have food to eat, probably enough that they could have sold some and bought a few other things that they might have needed. But it's not a perfect life, is it? What will happen after the harvest is finished? And even if they are able to gather enough from this harvest to kind of see them through to the next, what about the family line? Who's going to continue that? You see, Naomi's bitterness and her emptiness is is not just associated with having an empty stomach, is it? She's also got an empty family. No grandkids, no next of kin, no one to carry on the family name. And I think this is kind of the next big reason why we have the book of Ruth in our Bibles. See, Ruth functions as a bridge between the time of judges and the time of the kings that's going to come. And the book shows us that how through the messiness of Naomi's life, God will bring forth an heir who will eventually himself father a child, who will father another child, who is King David. See, in Naomi's filling of a family, we have a bridge being built between the end of Judges, remember that time where everyone did as they saw fit, and the time of the kings. I think that's part of what the book of Ruth is about. Well, that's enough of the kind of background. Let's dig into chapter 3 together. It's on page 265. I want to read verse 1 to you. It says this, One day Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. And Naomi outlines a plan for Ruth. 
It's a plan that is designed to fill the family. Remember how pleased Naomi was that Ruth had been in Boaz's field? If you want to flick back and look at verse 20 of chapter 2. Naomi's so pleased because Boaz is a guardian redeemer. In other words, he is one who is able to carry on the family name and bring filling to the family. But to get to that point, Naomi needs a plan. And I like the way that Tim Patrick puts this. He calls it a high-risk plan. See, what Naomi's suggesting is not a spur of the moment. Hey, let's go for a walk along the beach. It's not that sort of a plan. No, it's an intriguing and exciting plan. But it almost seems sinister, doesn't it? Or salacious, maybe. After all, it takes place late at night and it involves a man and a woman all alone. Let's have a look at the plan together. It's in verse, starts at verse 2 of chapter 3. It says this, Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. And as we read this, I think most of us get the general gist of what the plan involves. But the detail's a bit more confusing, isn't it? What exactly is Naomi proposing that Ruth do? Kind of makes sense up into verse 4. But then what does it mean when she says, lie down and uncover Boaz's feet? Is that literal or is it a euphemism for something a bit saucier? What is going on here? I told you before that I met Meredith on a bus. It was during our uni years and we'd both been at a conference in Sydney uh, we went over on the bus. I didn't know Meredith when we went on the bus. When it came to make our way back, Meredith was late for the bus, and the only spare seat on the bus was next to me. She had no choice but to sit with me. Ruth ended up in Boaz's field. I ended up with a spare seat on the bus that was filled by Meredith. And we got to know each other as that bus wound its way all the way from Sydney to Adelaide. It's a long way, long time to get to know each other. We roll the clock forward just a few months. Uni was now back up and running, and Meredith was there. I knew what I wanted. I wanted to ask Meredith out on a date. I don't know if you've ever done that before, but let me tell you, it's nerve-wracking, right? Asking someone out on a date. And it's nerve-wracking because it's high risk, isn't it? What if they say no? What if I've read the situation incorrectly? Would a friendship end in rejection? And how would I manage that feeling of rejection? Well, for Ruth, there's a lot at stake as well, isn't there? See, it's a bit like what Hollywood calls the friend zone. Ruth and Naomi have things pretty good with Boaz as a friend. He's already providing for them. He's already protecting them. What happens if the plan goes wrong? Will Boaz still allow Ruth to glean in her fields? Perhaps that's why they wait until the end of the harvest to hatch this plan. And Naomi urges Ruth to get ready. Wash, she says. It's always a great start if you're going on a date, isn't it? 
put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, head down to the threshing floor. Naomi's saying, Ruth, I want you at your most alluring. Exactly what happens on the threshing floor? I think there's some debate amongst commentators about this. Some suggest that the uncovering of feet is a, is a euphemism. Some go as far to say that it's Ruth took advantage of a drunk and tired Boaz and thereby forced him into a position where he needed to marry her for the sake of honour. And there are some, some kind of parallels here with the story of Tamar in the book of Genesis. But I think it's more likely, and I'm leaning on Tim Patrick here heavily, that what actually happens is recorded for us literally in the story we have before us. In verse 7, Boaz has finished eating and drinking and lies down at the far end of the grain pile. And Ruth does as she's told. Pick up the story with me in verse 8. It says, In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Startled, probably because he's got cold feet in the middle of the night, Boaz wakes up and he sees Ruth lying there. And as you read this, you get the impression that it's the last thing Boaz was expecting. Who are you, he says. He's as shocked as you would to wake up and find a woman lying at his feet. He asks and she replies, I'm your servant, Ruth. But here's the important bit. Look what Ruth asked him to do. And Naomi never told her to do this. She says, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. In his commentary, Robert Hubbard, who I've read a bit on in the book of Ruth, says that the spreading of a garment over a wife is still part of some Arab wedding festivities, even today. It's certainly not part of our custom in Australia, is it? But perhaps for people in their day, this might have been the equivalent of a man getting down onto one knee to ask a woman to marry him. But what I find really interesting about this verse is that it could also be translated as, spread your wings over me. You say, why is that so interesting? Well, come back to chapter 2 with me. Do you remember when Boaz met Ruth for the first time in the field? He was praising her for her kindness that she'd shown to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And he says in verse 12, as a prayer almost to Ruth, May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So the word that's translated here as wings is exactly the same word that Ruth uses in chapter 3. Essentially, she's saying to Boaz, spread your wings over me. And so she's saying to Boaz, as you prayed earlier, you asked God under whose wing I had taken refuge to reward me. Well, now I'd like you to reward me as I take refuge under your wing. Boaz, I'd like to have God work in you and through you to bring about the reward. We've seen so far in our story, haven't we, that God is active. He's the unnamed character behind each movement in the story. You know, we started off with the family leaving Israel and heading to Moab. Everyone dies except Naomi. Coincidence? Naomi is left with no hope apart from Ruth. 
Ruth goes out to glean, not in a random field, but in the field of Boaz. Is that coincidence? Is it chance? Is it luck? No, in the book of Ruth, these things are not presented that way. They're not acts of chance. They're attributed to the providential work of God. And now we see God's purposes being carried out in the person of Boaz. Do you think that God's still active in our world today? There are some who believe that God created this world and now he's just sitting back and letting creation do its thing, like a clock that's been wound up tightly and it's just slowly ticking on, unravelling on its own. Is God just sitting back watching the world unravel one stroke of the clock at a time? The book of Ruth helps us to see that God is active in this world. And in chapter 3, we see God using a person as his agent. For me, as I look back over the course of my life, I, I can see today God being at work in different people throughout my life. And perhaps this is no more so the case than with Warwick. Warwick was the bus driver of the bus that I met Meredith on. Seems like a strange person to be involved in your life, right? But as the bus driver, Warwick was also in charge of the bus stereo system. And the guy in charge of the stereo system decided that on the trip from Sydney to Adelaide, he wouldn't play music, but rather he would play sermons on the topic of love sex and marriage and those sermons played all the way from Sydney to Adelaide by the way Warwick was also our pastor he wasn't a random bus driver Um, probably worked that out already chapter 3 of Ruth helps us to see that God sometimes uses people to achieve his ends this morning I wonder is God using you Is he at work in you as you care for your neighbours in this area? As you welcome them over Halloween, as you give them coffee and refreshment? Is he at work in you as you speak with your co-workers about the hope you have for the world being put right? I often look back at my time as being an engineer now many years ago. I worked in a factory at one point with more than 300 people in it. The team I was part of, there were maybe 15, and not one of those people had ever given Jesus a second thought. I was the only one in my team who who knew anything about Jesus. Today I look back on those days. My memory is that I worked hard and diligently and responsibility with responsibility, and that I was kind to the people I worked with. But I hope my example was more like Boaz's than I remember it being. Is God using you today? Well, our story continues with Boaz's response to what Ruth asked. Let me read to you from verse 10. It says, The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. I wonder if anything strikes you as strange in Boaz's response. 
So at first blush, it seems that Boaz is suggesting that Ruth has been kind to him by choosing him as a potential husband. But what then is the earlier kindness that he refers to? I think it can only refer back to his previous interaction with Ruth in chapter 2. There in verses 11 and 12, Boaz commends Ruth for all that she has done for Naomi when she left her land and her people. And so I think if we're to make sense of chapter 3, we need to see here that the action of Ruth here is not so much for her own good, but for the good of Naomi. See, the kindness that Boaz is commenting on here is kindness towards Naomi. See, by propositioning Boaz on the threshing floor, Ruth has done a great thing for Naomi. It's Naomi's future that she is securing. It's her family's line that will continue. And Boaz makes this very clear. He says, you've not run after younger men. Ruth could have found a younger suitor, a man who would have taken into her home. She could have chased after love or wealth. But in selecting Boaz, she has chosen the only person who can redeem Elimelech's family, who can redeem Naomi. It's only Boaz who can give Naomi an heir. For Boaz is Naomi's guardian redeemer. But for Ruth, that means she'll have to marry an older man. There's a cost for Ruth. And although Boaz here is presented as a great guy in this story... He makes it plain that it will cost Naomi. And so he describes her kindness at this point as being greater than that which she showed before. I just want to pause here for a moment and just reflect on, explore with you what a guardian redeemer is. And to do that, we're going to need to get our heads around this Jewish custom called leveret marriage. Uh, To explain that, I want you to come with me to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. It's on page 200 of your Bibles. Because this is not something that's familiar with us today, and you might be wondering what this guardian-redeemer stuff is all about. So come to me at Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, on page 200. It says this, it says, If brothers are living together, and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of her brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. By the time we get to the book of Ruth, it seems that this law has been modified or adapted to the extent that the nearest surviving relative could be the male heir that would, or the male, sorry, that would help provide an heir for the family name to continue. Seems pretty bizarre for us today, doesn't it? But it was the custom of their day. So, the chapter ends with Ruth returning to Naomi. And just like at the end of chapter 2, Ruth arrives home with a gift for her mother-in-law. More grain, more food. kind of irks me at this point in the story as as a former engineer that our units of measurement have changed. I don't know if it irks you as well. But here we have in verse 17 how much grain she brings home. Six measures of barley. And we don't exactly know how much that is. It's not an ephah, and it's not likely to be six ephahs, because I don't think she would have been able to carry that. But it's a large amount, isn't it? So large that she needs help to get it on her back. And Boaz places the bundle on her, and she takes it home. And did you notice again the focus is not so much on Ruth, 
but rather on Naomi. Boaz loads up grain on Ruth's back, saying, don't go home to your mother-in-law empty-handed. At the end of chapter 3, we're again reminded that Naomi is not empty. She's back in the land where she belongs. God is providentially providing for her, using both Ruth and Boaz as his agents of kindness. And Ruth, the Moabitess, the woman who will become the great-great-grandmother of King David, is once again, in our story, legitimized as a woman of great kindness and, I think, great worth. She's held up for us as a stunning example of faithfulness and patience and self-sacrifice. Well, as we've worked our way through chapter 3, I hope you've seen God at work in people. I hope you've seen a bridge being constructed between the age of the judges and the age of King David that is to come. It's a bridge that I hope will be completed for you next week as we see these characters take their place in a lineage that leads right up until Jesus. Today we've seen God at work in Boaz and Ruth. For us today, if we really want to see God at work, we need look no further than his son, Jesus. For in Jesus we see God speaking and we see God working as a man. Jesus is the fullest revelation of what God is like. In our story today, Ruth demonstrated great loyalty and great faithfulness and great self-sacrifice, but it is Jesus who ultimately shows us what faithfulness and self-sacrifice looks like. In our story today, Boaz is identified as Naomi's redeemer. For us today, the New Testament tells us that Jesus is able to bring about our redemption, our salvation. And he does it through his own self-sacrifice. Next week, I hope you see this bridge being built from Ruth right through to Jesus. But today we've seen Ruth take a risk for the sake of Naomi to offer herself to Boaz in an, elf, in an act of self-sacrifice and kindness. And it is a risk that will eventually lead to the birth of David and later the birth of Jesus. I'm going to pray, and as I do so, I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 2 about how Jesus offered himself for our sake. Please join me as I pray. Father God, we give you thanks for this wonderful story and its demonstration of kindness and loyalty and self-sacrifice. Today we praise you for your son Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Father, we ask that you would work in and through us to make us like Jesus, to make us a people of kindness and self-sacrifice and faithfulness. We ask this to the praise of your glorious name. Amen.